1. Vanishing England The book by P.H.D.I.D.C.H.F.I.E.L.D. Chapter I Introduction This book is intended not to erase fears but to record facts. We wish to describe with pen and pencil those features of England which are gradually disappearing, and to preserve the memory of them. It may be said that we have begun our quest too late, that so much has already vanished that it is hardly worthwhile to record what is left. Although much has gone, there is still, however, much remaining that is good, that reveals the artistic skill and taste of our forefathers, and recalls the wonders of old time. It will be our endeavor to tell of the old country houses that time has spared, the cottages that grace the village green, the stern gray walls that still guard some few of our towns, the old moot halls and public buildings. We shall see the old-time farmers and rustics gathering together at fair and market, their games and sports and merry-makings, and whatever relics of old English life have been left for an artist and scribe of the 20th century to a record. Our age is an age of progress. Altira Petu is its motto, the spirit of progress is in the air, and lures its votaries on to higher flights. Sometimes they discover that they have been following a mere will-o'-the-wisp, that leads them into bog and quagmire whence no escape is possible. The England of a century, or even of half a century ago, has vanished, and we find ourselves in the midst of a busy, bustling world that knows no rest or peace. Inventions tread upon each other's heels in one long vast bewildering procession. We look back at the peaceful reign of the packed horse, the rumbling wagon, the advent of the merry coaching days, the lightning and the quicksilver, the chaining of the rivers with locks and bars, the network of canals that spread over the whole country, and then the first shriek of the railway engine startled the echoes of the countryside, a poor powerless thing that had to be pulled up the steep gradients by a chain attached to a big stationary engine at the summit, but it was the herald of the doom of the old world England. Highways and coaching roads, canals and rivers, were abandoned and deserted. The old coachmen, once lords of the road, ended their days in the poorhouse, and steam, almighty steam, ruled everywhere. Now the wayside inns wake up again with the bellow of the motor car, which like a hideous monster rushes through the old world villages, startling and killing old slow-footed rustics and scampering children, dogs and hens and clouds of dust strive in very mercy to hide the view of the terrible rushing demon. In a few years' time the air will be conquered, and aeroplanes, balloons, flying machines and airships, will drop down upon us from the skies and add a new terror to life. Not in vain the distance beacons. Forward, forward let us range. Let the great world spin forever down the ringing grooves of change. Life is forever changing, and doubtless everything is for the best in this best of possible worlds but the antiquary may be forgiven for mourning over the destruction of many of the picturesque features of bygone times and reveling in the recollections of the past. The half-educated and the progressive I attach no political meaning to the term delight in their present environment, and care not to inquire too deeply into the origin of things, the study of evolution and development is outside their sphere, but yet, as Dean Church once wisely said, in our eagerness for improvement it concerns us to be on our guard against the temptation of thinking that we can have the fruit or the flower, and yet destroy the root. It concerns us that we do not despise our birthright and cast away our heritage of gifts and of powers, which we may lose, but not recover. Every day witnesses the destruction of some old link with the past life of the people of England. A stone here, a buttress there it matters not, these are of no consequence to the innovator or the iconoclast if it may be our privilege to prevent any further spoliation of the heritage of Englishmen, if we can awaken any respect or reverence for the work of our forefathers, 
the labors of both artist and author will not have been in vain. Our heritage has been sadly diminished, but it has not yet altogether disappeared, and it is our object to try to record some of those objects of interest which are so fast perishing and vanishing from our view, in order that the remembrance of all the treasures that our country possesses may not disappear with them. The beauty of our English scenery has in many parts of the country entirely vanished, never to return. Coal pits, blasting furnaces, factories, and railways have converted once smiling landscapes and pretty villages into an inferno of black smoke, hideous mounds of ashes, huge mills with lofty chimneys belching forth clouds of smoke that kills vegetation and covers the leaves of trees and plants with exhalations. I remember attending at Oxford a lecture delivered by the late Mr. Ruskin. He produced a charming drawing by Turner of a beautiful old bridge spanning a clear stream, the banks of which were clad with trees and foliage. The sun shone brightly, and the sky was blue, with fleeting clouds. This is what you are doing with your scenery, said the lecturer. As he took his palette and brushes, he began to paint on the glass that covered the picture, and in a few minutes the scene was transformed. Instead of the beautiful bridge a hideous iron girder structure spanned the stream, which was no longer pellucid and clear but black as the sticks, instead of the trees arose a monstrous mill with a tall chimney vomiting black smoke that spread in heavy clouds, hiding the sun and the blue sky. That is what you are doing with your scenery, concluded Mr. Ruskin a true picture of the penalty we pay for trade, progress, and the pursuit of wealth. We are losing faith in the testimony of our poets and painters to the beauty of the English landscape which has inspired their art, and much of the charm of our scenery in many parts has vanished. We happily have some of it left still where factories are not. Some interesting objects that artists love to paint. It is well that they should be recorded before they to pass away. Transcriber's note, original, it. Old houses of both peer and peasant and their contents are sooner or later doomed to destruction. Historic mansions full of priceless treasures amassed by succeeding generations of old families fall a prey to a relentless fire. Old paneled rooms and the ancient floor timbers understand not the latest experiments in electric lighting, and yield themselves to the flames with scarce a struggle. Our forefathers were content with hangings to keep out the draughts and open fireplaces to keep them warm. They were a hardy race, and feared not a touch or breath of cold. Their degenerate sons must have an elaborate heating apparatus, which again distresses the old timbers of the house and fires their hearts of oak. Our forefathers, indeed left behind them a terrible legacy of danger that beam in the chimney, which has caused the destruction of many country houses. Perhaps it was not so great a source of danger in the days of the old wood fires. It is deadly enough when huge coal fires burn in the grates. It is a dangerous, subtle thing. For days, or even for a week or two, it will smolder and smolder, and then at last it will blaze up, and the old house with all its precious contents is wrecked. The power of the purse of American millionaires also tends greatly to the vanishing of much that is English the treasures of English art, rare pictures and books, and even of houses. Some nobleman or gentleman, through the extravagance of himself or his ancestors, or on account of the pressure of death duties, finds himself impoverished. Some of our great art dealers hear of his unhappy state, and knowing that he has some fine paintings of Van Dyck or Romney offer him 25 or 30,000 pounds for a work of art. The temptation proves irresistible. The picture is sold, and soon finds its way into the gallery of a rich American. No one in England having the power or the good taste to purchase it. We spend our money in other ways. The following conversation was overheard at Christie's. Here is a beautiful thing, you should buy it. 
said the speaker to a newly fledged baronet. I'm afraid I can't afford it, replied the baronet. Not afford it, replied his companion. It will cost you infinitely less than a baronet and do you infinitely more credit. The new baronet seemed rather offended, at the great art sales rare folios of Shakespeare, pictures, Sevres, miniatures from English houses are put up for auction, and of course find their way to America. Sometimes our cousins from across the Atlantic fail to secure their treasures. They have striven very eagerly to buy Milton's cottage at Calphone Street Giles, for transportation to America, but this effort has happily been successfully resisted. The carved table in the cottage was much sought after, and was with difficulty retained against an offer of L-150, an old window of 15th century workmanship in an old house at Shrewsbury was nearly exploited by an enterprising American for the sum of L-250, and some years ago an application was received by the Home Secretary for permission to unearth the body of William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, from its grave in the burial ground of Jordans, near Calphone Street Giles, and transport it to Philadelphia. This action was successfully opposed by the trustees of the burial ground, but it was considered expedient to watch the ground for some time to guard against the possibility of any illicit attempts at removal. It was reported that an American purchaser had been more successful at Ipswich, where in 1907 a Tudor house and corner post, it was said, had been secured by a London firm for shipment to America. We are glad to hear that this report was incorrect, that the purchaser was an English lord, who re-erected the house in his park. Wanton destruction is another cause of the disappearance of old mansions. Fashions change even in house building. Many people prefer new lamps to old ones, though the old ones alone can summon genii and recall the glories of the past, the associations of centuries of family life, and the stories of ancestral prowess. Sometimes fashion decrees the downfall of old houses. Such a fashion raged at the beginning of the last century, when everyone wanted a brand new house built after the Palladian style and the old weather-beaten pile that had sheltered the family for generations, and was of good old English design with nothing foreign or strange about it, was compelled to give place to a new-fangled dwelling place which was neither beautiful nor comfortable. Indeed, a great wit once advised the builder of one of these mansions to hire a room on the other side of the road and spend his days looking at his Palladian house, but to be sure not to live there. Many old houses have disappeared on account of the loyalty of their owners who were unfortunate enough to reside within the regions harassed by the Civil War. This was especially the case in the county of Oxford. Still you may see avenues of venerable trees that lead to no house. The old mansion or manor house has vanished. Many of them were put in a posture of defense. Earthworks and boats, if they did not exist before, were hastily constructed, and some of these houses were bravely defended by a competent and brave garrison, and were thorns in the sides of the parliamentary army. Upon the triumph of the latter, revenge suffered not these nests of malignants to live. Others were so battered and ruinous that they were only fit residences for owls and bats. Some loyal owners destroyed the remains of their homes lest they should afford shelter to the parliamentary forces. David Walter set fire to his house at Godstow lest it should afford accommodation to the rebels. For the same reason Governor Legg burnt the new Episcopal Palace, which Bancroft had only finished ten years before at Cuddestown. At the same time Thomas Gardiner burnt his manor house in Cuddestown Village, and many other houses were so battered that they were left indented, and so fell to a ruin. Sir Balstrode Whitelock describes how he slighted the works at Philly's Court, causing the bulwarks and lines to be digged down, the graphs i.e. moats filled, the drawbridge to be pulled up, and all leveled, 
I send away the great guns, the granados, fireworks, and ammunition, whereof there was good store in the fort, I procured pay for my soldiers, and many of them undertook the service in Ireland, this is doubtless typical of what went on in many other houses, the famous royal manor house of Woodstock was left battered and deserted, and haunted, as the readers of Woodstock will remember, by an adroit and humorous royalist named Joe Collins, who frightened the commissioners away by his ghostly pranks. In 1651 the old house was gutted and almost destroyed. The war wrought havoc with the old houses, as it did with the lives and other possessions of the conquered. History of Oxfordshire, by Jamie Fawner. But we are concerned with times less remote, with the vanishing of historic monuments, of noble specimens of architecture, and of the humble dwellings of the poor. The picturesque cottages by the wayside, which form such attractive features of the English landscape, we have only to look at the west end of St. Albans Abbey Church, which has been grimthorped out of all recognition, or at the over-restored Lincoln's Inn Chapel, to see what evil can be done in the name of restoration, how money can be lavishly spent to a thoroughly bad purpose. Property in private hands has suffered no less than many of our public buildings. Even when the owner is a lover of antiquity and does not wish to remove and to destroy the objects of interest on his estate, estate agents are responsible for much destruction. Sir John Sterling Maxwell, Bart, FSA at Keen Archaeologist, tells how an agent on his estate transformed a fine old grim 16th century fortified dwelling, a very perfect specimen of its class, into a house for himself, entirely altering the character of its appearance adding a lofty oriel and spacious windows with a new door and staircase, while some of the old stones were made to adorn a rockery in the garden. When he was abroad the elaborately contrived entrance for the defense of a square 15th century keep with four square towers at the corners, very curious and complete, were entirely obliterated by a zealous mason. In my own parish I awoke one day to find the old village pound entirely removed by order of an estate agent and a very interesting stand near the village smithy for fastening oxen when they were shod disappeared one day. The village publican wanting the posts for his pig the County council sweep away old bridges because they are inconveniently narrow and steep for the tourists' motors, and deans and chapters are not always to be relied upon in regard to their theories of restoration, and squire and parson works at havoc on the fabrics of old churches when they are doing their best to repair them. Too often they have decided to entirely demolish the old building. The most characteristic feature of the English landscape, with its square grey tower or shapely spire, a tower that island perhaps, loopholed and battlement, and tells of turbulent times when it afforded a secure asylum and stronghold when hostile bands were roving the countryside, within, Casina, Ambry, and Rudloff tell of the ritual of former days. Some monuments of knights and dames proclaim the achievements of some great local family, but all this weighs for nothing in the eyes of the renovating squire and parson. They must have a grand, new, modern church with much architectural pretension and fine decorations which can never have the charm which attaches to the old building. It has no memories, this new structure. It has nothing to connect it with the historic past. Besides, they decree that it must not cost too much. The scheme of decoration is stereotyped the construction mechanical, there is an entire absence of true feeling and of any real inspiration of devotional art, the design is conventional, the pattern uniform, the work is often scant and hurried, very different from the old method of building, we note the contrast, the medieval builders were never in a hurry to finish their work, the old fans took centuries to build, each generation doing its share, 
chancel or nave, aisle or window, each trying to make the church as perfect as the art of man could achieve. We shall see how much of this sound and laborious work has vanished, a prey to a restoration and ignorant renovation. We shall see the housebreaker at work in rural hamlet and in country town. Vanishing London we shall leave severely alone. Its story has been already told in a large and comely volume by my friend Mr. Philip Norman. Besides, is there anything that has not vanished, having been doomed to destruction by the march of progress? Now that Crosby Hall has gone the way of life in the great city, a few old halls of the city companies remain, but most of them have given way to modern palaces, a few city churches, very few, that escaped the great fire, and every now and again we hear threatenings against the masterpieces of Wren and another city church has followed in the wake of all the other London buildings on which the destroyer has laid his hand. The site is so valuable, the modern world of business presses out the life of these fine old edifices. They have to make way for newfangled erections built in the modern French style with sprawling gigantic figures with their limbs hanging on the porticos which seem to wonder how they ever got there, and however they were to keep themselves from falling. London is hopeless. We can but delve its soil when opportunities occur in order to find traces of Roman or medieval life. Churches, inns, halls, mansions, palaces, exchanges have vanished, or are quickly vanishing, and we cast off the dust of London streets from our feet and seek more hopeful places, but even in the sleepy hollows of old England the pulse beats faster than of yore, and we shall only just be in time to a rescue from oblivion and the housebreaker some of our heritage. Old city walls that have defied the attacks of time and of Cromwell's iron sides are often in danger from the wiseacres who preside on borough corporations. Town halls picturesque and beautiful in their old age have to make way for the creations of the local architect. Old shops have to be pulled down in order to provide a site for a universal emporium or a motor garage. Nor are buildings the only things that are passing away. The extensive use of motor cars and highway vandalism are destroying the peculiar beauty of the English roadside. The swift speeding cars create clouds of white dust which settles upon the hedges and trees, covering them with it and obscuring the wayside flowers and hiding all their attractiveness. Corn and grass are injured and destroyed by the dust clouds. The charm and poetry of the country walk are destroyed by motoring demons, and the wayside cottage gardens, once the most attractive feature of the English landscape are ruined, the elder England, too, is vanishing in the modes, habits, and manners of her people, never was the truth of the old oft-quoted Latin proverb tempera mutantur, et nos mutum or in Italy so pathetically emphatic as it is today, the people are changing in their habits and modes of thought, they no longer take pleasure in the simple joys of their forefathers, hence in our chronicle of vanishing England we shall have to refer to some of those strange customs which date back to primeval ages but which the railways, excursion trains, and the schoolmaster in a few years will render obsolete. In recording the England that is vanishing the artist's pencil will play a more prominent part than the writer's pen. The graphic sketches that illustrate this book are far more valuable and helpful to the discernment of the things that remain than the most effective descriptions. We have tried together to gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost, and though there may be much that we have not gathered, the examples herein given of some of the treasures that are left may be full in creating a greater reverence for the work bequeathed to us by our forefathers, and in strengthening the hands of those who would preserve them. Happily we are still able to use the present participle, not the past. It is vanishing England, not vanished, of which we treat, 
and if we can succeed in promoting an affection for the relics of antiquity that time has spared, our labors will not have been in vain or the object of this book unattained. Chapter II The Disappearance of England Under This Alarming Heading The Disappearance of England The Gaulo has recently published an article by Anne Guy Dorval on the erosion of the English coasts. The writer refers to the predictions of certain British men of science that England will one day disappear altogether beneath the waves, and imagines that we British folk are seized by a popular panic. Our neighbors are trembling for the fate of the Entente Cordial, which would speedily vanish with vanishing England, but they have been assured by some of their savants that the rate of erosion is only one kilometer in a thousand years, and that the danger of total extinction is somewhat remote. Professor Stanislaus Manier, however, declares that our panic is based on scientific facts. He tells us that the cliffs of Brighton are now one kilometer farther away from the French coast than in the days of Queen Elizabeth, and that those of Kevin are six kilometers farther away than in the Roman period. He compares our island to a large piece of sugar in water, but we may rest assured that before we disappear beneath the waves the period which must elapse would be greater than the longest civilizations known in history so we may hope to be able to sink rule Britannia for many a long year. Coast Erosion Island however, a serious problem, and has caused the destruction of many a fair town and noble forest that now lie beneath the seas, and the crumbling cliffs on our eastern shore threaten to destroy many a village church and smiling pasture. Fishermen tell you that when storms rage and the waves swell they have heard the bells chiming in the towers long covered by the seas and nigh the picturesque village of Bossom we were told of a stretch of sea that was called the park. This as late as the days of Henry VIII was a favorite royal hunting forest, wherein stags and fawns and does disported themselves, now fish are the only prey that can be slain therein. The Royal Commission on Coast Erosion relieves our minds somewhat by assuring us that although the sea gains upon the land in many places, the land gains upon the sea in others, and that the loss and gain are more or less balanced. As a matter of area this is true. Most of the land that has been rescued from the pitiless sea is below high water mark, and is protected by artificial banks. This work of reclaiming land can, of course, only be accomplished in sheltered places. For example, in the great flat bordering the wash, which flat is formed by the deposit of the rivers of the Fenland, and the seaward face of this region is gradually being pushed forward by the careful processes of enclosure. You can see the various old sea walls which have been constructed from Roman times onward. Some accretions of land have occurred where the sea piles of masses of shingle, and less foolish people cart away the shingle in such quantities that the waves again assert themselves. Sometimes sand silts up as at Southport in Lancashire, where there is the second longest pier in England, a mile in length, from the end of which it is said that on a clear day with a powerful telescope you may perchance see the sea that a distinguished traveler accustomed to the deserts of Sahara once found it, and that the name Southport is altogether a misnomer, as it is in the north and there is no port at all. But however much as an Englishman I might rejoice that the actual area of our tight little island, which after all is not very tight, should not be diminishing, it would be a poor consolation to me, if I possessed land and houses on the coast of Norfolk which were fast slipping into the sea. To know that in the Fenland industrious farmers were adding to their acres, and day by day, year by year, this destruction is going on, and the gradual melting away of land, the attack is not always persistent, it is intermittent, sometimes the progress of the sea seems to be stayed, and then a violent storm arises and falling cliffs and submerged houses proclaim the sway of the relentless waves, 
we find that the greatest loss has occurred on the east and southern coasts of our island. Great damage has been wrought all along the Yorkshire seaboard from Bridling to Kilnsea, and the following districts have been the greatest sufferers, between Cromer and Happisburg, Norfolk, between Pickfield and Southwold, Suffolk, Hampton and Hernot Bay, and then Street Margaret's Bay, near Dover, the coast of Sussex, east of Brighton, and the Isle of Wight, the region of Bournemouth and Poole, Lime Bay, Dorset, and Bridgewater Bay, Somerset, all along the coast from Yarmouth to Eastbourne, with a few exceptional parts, we find that the sea is gaining on the land by leaps and bounds, it is a coast that is most favorably constructed for coast erosion, there are no hard or firm rocks, no cliffs high enough to give rise to a respectable landslip, the soil is composed of loose sand and gravels, loams and clays, Nothing to resist the assaults of atmospheric action from above or the sea below. At Cuffyathy, on the Suffolk coast, there has been the greatest loss of land. In 1887 60 feet was claimed by the sea. And in 10 years 1878-87 the loss was at the rate of over 18 feet a year. In 1895 another heavy loss occurred between Southwold and Cuffyathy and a new co-formed. Eastern Gavent has entirely disappeared. And so had the once prosperous villages of Cuffyathy. Bird next Walton, and Newton by Corton, and the same fate seems to be awaiting Pickfield, Southwold, and other coast-lying towns. Easton Gavin once had such a flourishing fishery that it paid an annual rent of 3110 herrings, and millions of herrings must have been caught by the fishermen of disappeared Dunvike, which we shall visit presently, as they paid annually, fish fair, to the clergy of the town 15.377 herrings besides 70.000 to the Royal Treasury, the summer visitors to the pleasant watering place Felix Stow, named after St. Felix, who converted the East Anglians to Christianity and was their first bishop, that being the place where the monks of the Priory of St. Felix in Walton held their annual fair, seldom reflect that the old Saxon burg was carried away as long ago as 1100 AD and Sir was compelled to retire inland and erect his famous castle at Walton but the sea respected not the proud walls of the baron's stronghold, the strong masonry that girt the keep lies beneath the waves, a heap of stones, called by the rustic stoneworks, a low marks the site of this once powerful castle, two centuries later the baron's marsh was destroyed by the sea, and eighty acres of land was lost, much to the regret of the monks, who were thus deprived of the rent and tithe corn, the old chroniclers record many dread visitations of the relentless foe, Thus in 1237 we read, the sea burst with high tides and tempests of winds, marsh countries near the sea were flooded, herds and flocks perished, and no small number of men were lost and drowned, the sea rose continually for two days and one night, again in 1251, on Christmas night there was a great thunder and lightning in Suffolk, the sea caused heavy floods, in much later times to fill records, Aldeburgh has two streets, each near a mile long, but its breadth, which was more considerable formerly, is not proportionable, and the sea has of late years swallowed up one whole street, it has still standing close to the shore its quaint picturesque town hall, erected in the 15th century, Southwold is now practically an island, bounded on the east by the sea, on the southwest by the Bly River, on the northwest by Bus Creek, it is only joined to the mainland by a narrow neck of shingle that divides Bus Creek from the sea. I think that I should prefer to hold property in a more secure region. You invest your savings in stock, and dividends decrease and your capital grows smaller, but you usually have something left. But when your land and houses vanish entirely beneath the waves, 
The chapter is ended and you have no further remedy except to sue Father Neptune, who has rather a wide beat and may be difficult to find when he is wanted to be served with a summons, but the Suffolk coast does not show all loss. In the north much land has been gained in the region of Beclas, which was at one time close to the sea, and one of the finest spreads of shingle in England extends from Adyberg to Bawdry. This shingle has silted out many a Suffolk port, but it has proved a very effectual barrier against the inroads of the sea. Norton's map of the coast made in 1601 shows this wonderful mass of shingle, which has greatly increased since Norton's day. It has been growing in a southerly direction, until the Aid River had until recently an estuary 10 miles in length, but in 1907 the sea asserted itself, and burst through the stony barrier, making a passage for the exit of the river one mile further north, and leaving a vast stretch of shingle and to deserted river channels as a protection to the marshes of Halsley from further inroads of the sea. Formerly the river Alda flowed direct to the sea just south of the town of Aldeburg. Perhaps someday it may be able to again force a passage near its ancient course or by Havergate Island. This alteration in the course of rivers is very remarkable, and may be observed at Christchurch. Hans, it is now in possession of Mr. Kenneth M. Clark, by whose permission the accompanying plan, reproduced from the Memorials of Old Suffolk, was made. Memorials of Old Suffolk, edited by V.B. Redstone, page 226. It is pathetic to think of the historic churches beautiful villages, and smiling pastures that have been swept away by the relentless sea. There are no less than twelve towns and villages in Yorkshire that have been thus buried, and five in Suffolk. Ravensburg, in the former county, was once a flourishing seaport. Here landed Henry Idy in 1399, and Edward Idy in 1471. It returned to members to Parliament. An old picture of the place shows the church, a large cross, and houses but it has vanished with the neighboring villages of Redmatter, Far Lethorpe, Frismarch, and Potterfleet, and left not a rack behind. Leland mentions it in 1538, after which, 